You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more about this show and my other show, Enthusiasts, plus to get the latest interviews, K-pop news, album reviews, and so much more, subscribe to the show's free newsletter at 17karatkpop.substack.com. Enjoy the show! Welcome back to 17 Karat K-pop. Today, we are talking about all things J-pop and just a condensed version of Japanese history, Japanese music history, period. How J-pop evolved, where it got its roots, how K-pop actually borrowed from J-pop, not the other way around, more than you realize. All things Japanese music industry over time. Before I get specifically to that, though, we are going to dive into the wacky story of how karaoke was first on the scene. It's quite a weird story that has several false starts in a way, mixed with people getting killed over karaoke. I mean, it's really intense. There could be a whole miniseries about the action-packed drama of this, but also sweet moments. It's a great story. Excited to share it. So we'll start with that and then dive into the broader topic. Before you listen to this episode, I do want to clarify that I really, really tried practicing my pronunciation. There are some words in this episode I may be mispronouncing or sounding like I'm clearly not a native speaker, and I really do apologize. I really have been practicing. Some pronunciations just don't come naturally to me as an English speaker, but people's names especially really matter, so I really, really, really do try to get it right. And I'm always open to corrections, so you're more than welcome to give me feedback about, hey, you didn't say that correctly. But I mean no disrespect, and I really just care about getting this right. Karaoke was invented, you could say, no less than five times, just between 1967 and 1972, because those who thought they they had come up with the concept did not patent it. Some because they really couldn't be bothered, had a bunch of side projects and or other patents to attend to, and this was not at the top of the priorities list for what to copyright. Others just didn't really seem to think about it. But no matter the reason, karaoke, basically the OG of user-generated content, was kind of fair game for users to feel like they had started something. Karaoke itself, of course, was kind of a thing unofficially before the actual machines were made. Companies like Music Minus actually sold instrumental-only albums to music students in the 50s, so they could use those to work on singing. There was also in the 60s an NBC show called Sing Along with Mitch, which was basically a sing-along show. You would sing with the hosts at home. But the idea of the actual machine was created by, like I said, five main people. But we're going to focus on two, one who's thought to be the first to come up with the actual contraption, and one who is largely thought of as the official creator because he came up with more of the hardware, software, inner workings of said box. The first thing to note is the term salarymen. Salarymen is a term for men in Japan. It has a long history behind it, so I'm just covering the surface level. There's so much more you could say about this. I'll link to reading on my site about it. Salarymen culture is all about kind of glorifying the daily grind. And I don't mean that in a negative way, necessarily. Just that they really put on a... They held in high regard and put on a pedestal the view of office workers. The view of salarymen. Always being on the clock, going through that daily grind, was seen as a noble thing to do. And it is pretty prized here in the U.S. too, although with more autonomy, the U.S. values individualism differently. In other countries, they have a lot more communal focus. Like in Japan, their office workers don't have little cubicles, they have big open floor plans. There's more cooperation. Actually, some Japanese offices have had like calisthenics, or they sing a company theme song to start the day. Different group team-building endeavors are not uncommon. 
Schoolboys in Japan, surveyed throughout the 60s and 70s, often cited salarymen when asked what they wanted to be when they grew up. This was viewed as just a heroic role to have. Karaoke became a go-to hobby for these salarymen because they would consider it still on the clock and therefore not feel guilty about it because they would have after hours, time with clients, time with bosses. They would go to work meetings, go get drinks or dinner with people they work with. So their after-hour time with colleagues would often turn into serious business meetings still, but also with karaoke on the side. And this demographic would only be ideal for any person trying to sell something more throughout those decades because the salarymen's salaries kept going up as their office white-collar work really started becoming even more sought after. The first creator of the idea was Shijinichi Nagishi. Back in 1967, he actually owned a bunch of different patents, from foldable speakers to marking rounds, so that a robber would end up stained with dye and you would be able to catch them. So yeah, quite a variety. He also ran a factory in this location considered pretty ideal for military manufacturing, because it was kind of an out-of-the-way, relatively location. He actually also had a, an interest in merging the world of culture and music, entertainment, with manufacturing expertise because he visited this manga character place, this headquarters where they made manga and piqued his interest in character merchandising. And he saw how when people were having assistants put the final touches on an author's manga, the author would actually send it to the assistant, like down a level with a big lever pulley system. That really kind of sparked his imagination about, ooh, maybe there is a good potential here for merging manufacturing and music, like merging manufacturing and manga. The military manufacturing hub of Japan, where he was, turned into a tech hub like a Silicon Valley of Japan over time, and then they started building things like 8-tracks, 8-track stereos for cars, which were kind of groundbreaking at the time because you could listen to 80 minutes of music straight, twice the usual amount, and you didn't have to flip it over, so you could listen to stuff on loop without flipping the tape over. Yeah, we've come a long way. As Najishi drove to work, he loved singing along with his 8-tape, his 8-track tape. And he just loved the broadcast, Pop Songs Without Lyrics. That was literally what it's called. So he drove to work, singing along to the broadcast, and he was like, I kind of want to hear myself as I sing along. Is there a way we could hook up a mic to this broadcast, to this stereo system? So he asked his engineers to figure it out. Three days later, on his desk, was the first karaoke machine. But because the word karaoke sounded way too similar to kanoki, the Japanese word for coffin, he had to go by Sparko Box instead. He called it the Sparko Box, and it looked like less cute than it sounds. The Sparko Box was like light bright, but with the light pegs, I guess you could say, the sparks, the twinkle lights of sorts, the blinking lights were inside. So it had a translucent front screen and basically looked like a big blinking light filled music box. So he took it home and surprised his wife and three kids. Like, look, we can sing along with the strobe light effect. And they did. That's so cute. The very first ever karaoke party known was a family of five just rocking out in their kitchen. After partnering with a distributor to get this Sparko box in bars and restaurants all over the place, staff were so ticked off. This was too popular. Customers were getting obsessed with these boxes. Obsessed. 
they actually also really made a splash in what are called love hotels in Japan. With some families living together throughout their lives, sometimes they just have to get away from it all. Like, they really do to get some privacy. They have to go somewhere. So love hotels fulfill that need. And they kind of are known for kind of gaudy interior and stuff. So this faux light bright fit the weird aesthetic perfectly. So bars, restaurants, intimate getaways alike, Sparkle Box was a hit. He actually left the business, though, at the same time as his business partner in 1973. After about 8,000 Sparko boxes had been spread across Japan. And actually, 50 years later, the Sparko box, when tested, still worked. The next guy who kind of invented this, Daisuke Inoui. Three years after the Sparko box, he created the 8 Juke, which was similar, but actually a little more advanced. He added a reverb box so the amateurs would actually sound better. So he added the reverb, and he didn't have a strobe light effect. He also made the Ajuke rise above other Sparko box copycats by giving it a new library. A lot of these copycats used the exact same songs, the exact same instrumentals, all kind of manufactured, borrowed recordings, just the same stuff. So he actually put it upon himself to record live versions of literally hundreds of songs live band versions of these instrumentals so that not only could his catalog associated with the 8 juke stand out from the rest and give listeners something new but he could change the pitches the tempos other things about the structure of these songs to be easier to sing with to be in an easier key and speed for amateurs So OG karaoke was really good for pros if you really want a genuine practice session. But what really made it just kind of anyone can be a star is his version. He focused on recording literally hundreds of songs. So by the end of 1970, he just had 10 of these built. And he distributed them to snack bars in early 1971. He agreed to loan them the machines for free as long as he got a cut of the profits because the customers paid to use them. The first customer interaction with the Ajuke was nothing. It was blank stares. It was, what is this? What do we do with this? So he actually had hostess friends of his. These women would show up, not telling them they had been asked to do so. They would just be like, we just spontaneously wanted to check out this place. So they started using the Ajuke, posing and looking cute. Then the audience wanted to emulate them and join in. The Ajukes were huge by that spring, but so much profit went back into making the machines and recording stuff. Inoue actually just kept up his side gig playing as a pro musician, so this was not making him rich. But he did kind of develop the reputation as an unpaid PR person, a go-between facilitating between karaoke businesses and the artists whose music would be involved with them. He did the equivalent of roughly $100 million a year in sales, though he never saw a single royalty check for the machine itself. He actually did win, though, a Peace Prize back in 2004 for, quote, inventing karaoke, thereby providing an entirely new way for people to learn to tolerate each other, unquote. He then led the crowd at the ceremony in a rendition of a song from a Coca-Cola ad called, I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing in Perfect Harmony. 
Karaoke is a phenomenon became sought after by big companies, not just individual inventors. The big corporations got involved in the early 70s. JVC, Japan Victor Company, released their own version, Toshiba, Pioneer. One odd, unintended consequence of karaoke becoming so big, at this point not just in bars, restaurants, but actually like homes, private places too, the noise complaints were off the charts. There was actually a very historic, terrible 1977 brawl over karaoke. In an 18-person fight, almost 18 customers fighting over whose turn it was, four ended up hospitalized. Plus, in the Philippines, they've had the issue dubbed the My Way Killings, because I kid you not, at least six different murders have been associated with fights over karaoke renditions of the song My Way by Frank Sinatra. Six murders. So karaoke had kind of a dark side. Both brought the world together and had a dark side, which some writers really opined about in the late 70s and 80s. Famously, sci-fi writer Ro Hanmura wrote that, quote, the art of bar conversation, unquote, was over because, quote, now everyone just sits there with their brains turned off, waiting their turn to sing, unquote. Then music critic Tadashi Fujita argued that by democratizing karaoke access, it was devaluing the truly talented artists out there. If anyone can be a star, who's really a star? This is devaluing true stars who deserve the public applause. He actually used Western hip-hop in that writing as a counterexample, saying that's a way you could innovate, truly be creative with sampling, new rap verses, etc. to really shake up an original song, better than a karaoke version. So let's take a page out of their book. The critics were still the minority, though. And an industry survey from the mid-90s revealed that nearly half of the entire population of Japan did karaoke at least once every year. In around 170,000 karaoke rooms, 70,000 had filled the nation by then. Karaoke did catch on in the U.S., but not till the mid to late 80s. Actually, the very first rock album to ever be translated for karaoke, basically. Bruce Springsteen, born in the USA because he was so big in Japan, in his 1985 Japan tour was such a hit, karaoke versions of his songs were sold there. Advertised as giving you, quote, that exact feeling of singing with the boss, unquote. The U.S. karaoke definitely took on its own flavor because what had become popular, as I said in the episode of the show called The History of Noreban, it's common to go in like a little room, little karaoke private rooms you can rent out in a restaurant or some other establishment. It's meant to be kind of a private, no one's watching, so let loose thing. Whereas in the U.S., it became like, no, let the world hear this, be really big in public, do this at weddings, do this at strangers' houses, whatever you want to do, be public and loud and embarrassed in person, (laughs) embarrassed for a bigger crowd. So it became associated with big social scenes, not private rooms. Actually, though, karaoke machines first did make their U.S. debut in Japanese restaurants. And the first karaoke lounges really were popping off in L.A. and New York. It was kind of famously solidified as a piece of memorable American culture, too, with comments from George H.W. Bush in 92, when he famously said, quote, We're running against the karaoke kids, and they'll sing any tune that they think will get them elected, unquote. 
All right, let's go back now and talk about some big moments outside of karaoke's invention related to Japanese music in the J-pop evolution. First of all, if you want to take it really way back, one of the OG creation myths eons ago in Japanese folklore and mythology revolves around the sun goddess Amaterasu, who is actually with this story about being lured out of hiding by song and dance. So even with the earliest storytelling there was, the power of music to move people literally and symbolically was acknowledged. There were some Korean artists who broke through in Japan in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Not many, but Chegyuyop, Yi Nanyeon, she was actually the one who gave her kids musical training and turned them into the 50s stars, the Kim sisters. There was Akiko Wada, she really broke ground for her quote-unquote masculine look that was definitely expectation subverting. So there were some early breakthroughs before J-pop or K-pop would be established, decades before. Another pre-J-pop and K-pop interesting milestone was the popularity it proved to have when they had like an American Idol type audition. This post-war singing contest, this big first-of-its-kind public broadcast in 1946, which got over 900 people to participate. In 1950, that's where the story starts for Johnny Kitagawa. He created Johnny's and Associates, JNA, and is the basically father of J-pop. I've talked about him a bit in past episodes, but much more today than ever. We have a lot to say about him and his place in history. His dad was actually sent by a Buddhist sect to LA, to Little Tokyo, to preach, basically, and that's why he was in LA. Johnny was asked if he could translate. He was 18, and they asked him to help out a preteen, basically, 13-year-old J-pop star, Hibari Misori, be the interpreter while she was in California for the tour. He liked translating so much, he decided to join the U.S. military as an interpreter. He then became an American embassy member in Tokyo. He later saw a performance of West Side Story, and that really got him thinking. I bet I could make a boy band famous for the dancing. Now, just remember, at this time, so much as lifting your legs in a dance as a man was considered unmanly and embarrassing. Like, boy groups, the way we understand them, just nonsensical, totally impractical, no way it'll happen. That was the mindset then. People definitely counted him out. Like, what the heck? No way that'll catch on. But he was really stubborn. He was like, I really think young boys dancing and making the show about more than just vocal could be a hit. And he set up, in 1962, his j company, and their motto became, bringing smiles and sensations to your world since 1962. He started promoting The Johnnies, a four-person boy group who, they had moderate success, but that's it. And he tried to emulate the promo strategies used by Don Kirshner. He was big in the U.S., like with the monkeys and their TV show and stuff. He was finding new ways to get boy bands to break through. In the mid-60s, a lot of J-pop, for bands and non-bands, was driven by Beatlemania. Sound-wise, style-wise, even promo-wise, they were kind of influencing Japanese culture in the music world quite a bit. There were a lot of copycat bands and increased speculation, increased suspicion again, that a boy band that dances could really be pulled off. Like, no, people want the Beatles playing their own instruments. They don't want a dancing group. Clearly the appetite is elsewhere. 
but he was undeterred. And in the early 70s, he really laid the template. Truly way before K-pop was even a thing, J-pop laid the template for this trainee system. He started the OG trainee system that K-pop stars use now for a group living together in a dorm, being scouted, training for a while before debut in a bunch of different areas to become multi-talented individuals and as a collective. And he also had this kind of graduation system where younger members of the group would be backup dancers for the older ones. He also debuted a boy group in the 70s called Four Leaves, again, just kind of moderately successful. In the early 80s, Japanese musicologist Shuhai Hosokawa coined the term the Walkman effect to describe how people now listen to a Walkman, a personal music listening device unlike ever before. So now music listening was not a communal experience. People craved privacy over their playlists. They craved an escape individually. They craved an alternative, personalized chosen soundtrack over the city sounds and other daily life sounds, which became an interesting new way to approach music period and music consumption. Side note, actually, the Walkman's predecessor was invented by a different guy, a guy in Brazil, Andreas Pavel, who actually called it a stereo belt. He eventually sued Sony, overtaking his OG idea. They reached a settlement decades later. It's quite a story. But anyway, Sony was really behind the first Walkman in the public perception. And anti-Japanese rhetoric really thrived in the U.S. And just in media portrayals, this was viewed as a big threat to the U.S. economy. Like, oh my gosh, there's a Japan takeover. They also felt the same amount of being threatened by the dominance of Japanese companies, basically. When Mitsubishi bought the Rockefeller Center, Sony bought Columbia Records, Nintendo bought Seattle Mariners, the baseball team, they were like, they're taking up our culture, basically. It was really xenophobic and awful. The first CDs that were sold commercially were in Japan in October 1982. They didn't actually reach the US or Europe until spring 83. 1987. J&E also pioneered the concept of boy band members being on shows, like variety shows, because really, it was pretty unheard of, and still is like in the US and other parts of the world, it's not normalized to assume good musician equals good actor, equals good model, etc. But you are expected to be good at a bunch of different jobs. In K-pop, for example, a lot of K-pop band members are MCs for shows, or they appear a lot on variety shows, they get their own shows, they're in dramatic movies, etc. For J-pop, that was really unheard of. And so J&E was really the first to be like, no, this is a good idea for their image. It'll be cool. We'll make it cool to be goofy and show that side of yourself on TV. Around this time also, they were probably hoping to take some of the spark that came from the popularity of the tale of Genji. The protagonist, Hikaru Genji, she was really big with their target demographic. They were seeking a bigger audience by turning to TV, basically. You simply cannot talk about the history of J-pop without talking about SMAP, S-M-A-P. I'm going to call them SMAP for the rest of this episode. Sports Music Assembly People. They were created in 88, but had like an official, official debut in the early 90s. And they initially flopped, but they found their footing really well. Like really suddenly their fame was next level after being booked on variety shows. And one of them in particular was in the drama Lawn Vacation, which was big all across Asia, really just skyrocketed the star power of the whole group and him. 
they also just touched everyone who loves boy band music with a sappy, one and only flower in the world. Their news of disbanding in 2016, hard to overstate how intense it was, the reaction. First of all, it was just a rumor at first. It really was just a rumor, but that was already leaving fans so upset. So SMAP, they came onto the scene, they came onto their broadcast, their show, for an episode where they wore black suits, looked very solemn, bowed deeply, apologized, and then surprise, we're just joking, we're actually still together. Even Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was like, oh, that's a relief, and Twitter in Japan crashed. However, they actually did for real end six months later, which led to a bunch of fan petitions, taking out full-page ads in the paper to try to beg them to stay together. J-pop as more than just music, as really focused more on upping the live show experience, the music video budgets, all that stuff. It became more of a package deal, with a greater percentage of the focus shifting away from pure audio focus. That was big in the 90s, in part because of a big economic crash in Asia, really reshaping Japanese consumer culture, spending habits, and at this time, material purchases did not have the same importance. We see that in big trends in Japan, the biggest commodities in Japan. Sanrio sales slumped, for example. What rose in value then were not material things that felt easy to have the value wiped away of in a future crash, but what rose was the value seen in the experience economy, in services, in providing something to people, not just a tangible object, experiences. Which is also partly why karaoke was everything in Japan in the 90s. Plus, 1993 is when karaoke really just got people more hyped than ever because the Enka style was slower, ballad-focused. That was out the window. Now J-pop was the go-to karaoke. So now what was available to sing along with was appealing to a younger demographic. Japan kind of accidentally started creating the first data for music, the first pop music analytics and charts, because they used the data from these now digital karaoke machines to figure out, okay, what demographics are enjoying these songs from these artists? Where are they geographically? Where are those machines located? Who's using them? And they were figuring out the popularity of their artists in where and why that way. Before J-pop became the go-to at karaoke, just a handful of Japanese singles sold a million copies at least. But after this, 20 did in a year. The UK had 26 songs that were at least million sellers. 26 songs sold at least a million copies throughout the decade, so for the 90s period. 26 for a decade. But in one year, Japan had 20 million sellers during the 90s. 20 a year. AVEX, still a major player in the J-pop world, I'm sure some of your faves are from there or tangentially related to AVEX, huge, huge company. They had these on-the-street interviews and they really took advantage of karaoke to go out and do kind of impromptu focus groups and see, because a lot of schoolgirls and other younger targeted demographics were going out to karaoke. So they would go there and kind of stake out the area and ask them questions and see if they could gather some qualitative data about their artists that would help shape the directions of their groups. What did fans want? They were delivering what fans wanted, like a TRL of its own. In 94, Asia and Beat aired on Fuji TV, which is when a lot of Japanese audiences were exposed to K-pop because it featured pop from across many Asian countries. 
And what seemed to particularly intrigue and feel different and new to viewers was the incorporations in K-pop of both the dancing and rap elements, similar to what that musicologist predicted, that rap would be viewed as a new innovation that gained attention there. Another big moment I want to bring up from J-pop history, the mid-90s king and queen of J-pop. They were a couple, music producer Tetsuya Komoro and the singer and his prodigy Tomomi Kahara. Kahara's debut album, Love Brace, sold over a million copies after just one week. She was kind of hard to explain, but her fame is understandable if you knew about her. Because she came across as very relatable, but also not. And she was not approachable, but also didn't take herself too seriously. She was kind of like one of the young girls who looked up to her. And she was a big star. Like, she had this famous date at the Sanrio theme park. Like, the paparazzi were staking out, wondering, where's this buzzed about hot date night gonna be with her A-list boyfriend? She chose the Sanrio park and just had a blast there and didn't care if she looked immature or whatever. Her embrace of the kawaii of it all for a celebrity, it wasn't, I mean, that's more just normalized in Japan, period. But at the time, it, it was still a very impactful event, really shaped perceptions of her. In 99, Sony Music was unprepared, and in Japan. Akio Morita had passed away unexpectedly, and the company kind of missed out on the smartphone revolution years. By 2013, they were making more money on life insurance in Japan than electronics. A company that had good timing to take their place, sort of, in J-pop was SM Entertainment. With Boa's much-hyped Japanese debut, her first studio album in Japanese came out in 2002. Another huge moment was Winter Sonata. This was actually out in 2002, but not in Japan until 2003. Winter Sonata was one of the first ever K-dramas to air in Japan, and they did not expect it to take off, but boy did it. And it really surprised people how much older women, specifically, were enamored with this show. It was basically about a music prodigy who gets amnesia after a car crash, and somehow it just really resonated with older Japanese women. So much so that the soundtrack was performed as part of a live concert tour in Japan. The same year Bo was really breaking through there. Another big moment for K-pop in Japan, 2008, when Big Bang was on top, they released For the World, which topped the charts there, and Sunset Glow became their first number one single in Japan. K-pop further broke in there with Girls' Generation, the Japanese version of Genie, and the first Japanese studio album in the early 2010s. They became the first foreign girl group relative to Japan to have an album top their Oricon album chart, and the first to sell over a million copies. In 2012, Guinness World Records officially cited Johnny Kitagawa as being in charge of the most successful production and talent agency in pop history. He got that designation as most successful talent agency leader because he was dubbed the individual with the most number one acts ever. Interesting timing that for a few years there, there was kind of a lull in Japanese interest in K-pop. YG and SM Entertainment had success there, there was a lull, and then the final of, at then, the big three K-pop companies had their shot at it, and twice in 2015, they debuted and became the biggest in Japan. Truly so hard to overstate how big they got there. 
SM artists, though, do still make it big there, and TVXQ had a Japanese tour in 2018 that in that year alone surpassed 1.28 million attendees. That was also the year Johnny's Jr. got a YouTube channel. So they have opened up more, opened up more channels and opened up more just in terms of sharing their life with others. Yeah, Johnny's used to be super popular despite not doing promo, being very closed off, close to press requests, not really on social media except what subscribers could get. But then they opened up free content more in 2018. You may recall 2017-2018 is when BTS was really suddenly skyrocketing, at least in the U.S., so their new global level of fame may have made J-pop feel like they had to step up the pace of promo to compete. Now I'd like to point out some key dates in history, a timeline not about the music industry directly, as much as just world news, international relations, and Korean-Japanese relations. Some of it may not seem relevant, but I think all of it adds interesting context to why there's been kind of waves of being amicable to pop culture spread and times they've been hostile towards it. 1910 to 1945, the Japanese occupied the Korean Peninsula. In 65, a treaty was finally signed, signifying the start of their domestic relations. In the 90s, South Korean youth surveyed often said they viewed South Korean culture as inferior to Japan's, even though they kind of had a ban on getting Japanese pop culture. They found ways around it, but still. In 98, South Korea started a phase-out of that ban on Japanese pop culture imports. In 2003, there was a really, I don't want to get into it, but a really just awful, hard-to-talk-about, intense, just terrible, terrible situation where the crimes Kitagawa had done were brought to light, a Tokyo court sided with the accusers against him, so really bad PR, in 2003. But the defensive posturing continued two years later when there were pieces written and widely read called things like hating the Korean wave. Korea kind of responded with their own pieces about hating the Japanese wave of culture. There was quite a back and forth, and they showed a further divergence through different tactics and different preoccupations in the mid-2000s. Japan focused a lot internally, tailoring the music and stars' images to local preferences. South Korea, on the other hand, thought global. They promoted artists heavily on social media. YouTube especially was big for K-pop. They try to make their music more accessible to outside audiences. There were some interesting moments in 2020 that indicated a possible softening of the feelings toward South Korea in some ways. There was a very historic partnership signed between Japan and China and South Korea. Usually that does not happen, but they were all on board for this symbolic pact. So yeah, loose guidelines, loosely defined, pretty vague, but still a symbolic pact. China led this plan for a post-COVID economic roadmap, and 15 countries signed on. 2020 was also when Japan topped the list of countries who were tweeting about K-pop. And that's the year the number of K-pop albums in Japan's Oricon chart Top 100 reached 26, which is over a fourth of that Top 100. 
There's another moment that may have highlighted one part of the Japan-South Korea relationship, which is sometimes they do need to cooperate, when in mid-September 2021, North Korea said they had tested out this big long-range missile that could hit Japan, and in response, Japan and South Korea, they convened their security councils. So North Korea has ended up kind of being one way that Japan and South Korea have worked together for a combating of a shared enemy. But then there are other times where the history, the negative history between Japan and South Korea, really is in the spotlight, and partly that was in 2021 as well. That's when South Korea's Supreme Court ruled that workers forced into labor during a war called Comfort Women were owed financial compensation from Japan, although Japan insisted a treaty signed in 65 proves otherwise. South Koreans separately were shaving their heads to protest Japan's new announcement that they were going to release nuclear plant water from Fukushima into the ocean. A report from 2021 by the Korean Foundation for International Cultural Exchange cited an uptick in negative perceptions of Hallyu, the Korean wave in Japan, that had been going on for the past few years, contrasting with a decline elsewhere. So this report found that throughout the past five-ish years or so, a lot of countries' views toward the Korean wave have become more positive, or at least less negative than they were. Not the same trend in Japan, and the negative recognition rate actually rose over time. 2018, it was 29.8%, 2019, 31.4%, 2020, 33.2%. The reasons cited, 41.6% cited political conflicts. Others cited historic relations, which is kind of related, but I guess was a separate category of responses. The other option, at 31.6%, negative views of the character of Korean people. There have been some heated anti-K-pop moments in Japan expressed outright hate for Hallyu or anything not Japanese, really. Any outsider influence that they view as inferior. A Japanese actor, Sosuke Takauka, was fired after he criticized Fuji TV, the Asian beat, the show that first introduced K-pop, into a lot of homes on TV. He said that programming left him feeling, quote, brainwashed, unquote, and so he was fired, and 6,000 people turned up at the headquarters of Fuji TV to protest his firing. They carried Japanese flags and shouted things like, no more Korean wave. But the other extreme is still there, where they have some K-pop superfans, and K-pop has really become a big part of their pop culture interests. After all, it's actually altered the Japanese language. Now certain fandom terminology, like fan cam, that stuff's not translated. Like, they use the same word for fan terminology in Japan that they would use in Korea. So even if you're saying something like, I don't like fan cams, you're still saying something that's inherent to K-pop culture. There are other cultural shared interests, like Enka, which I mentioned before, it's a specific music style that basically was created with the intent to appeal more to older audiences than Western pop music was. A lot of classical and jazz, genres young people are assumed to not care about. The word literally means speech song, and speech songs basically officially date back centuries. Protesters would turn chants into songs to avoid the sedition laws of the time. Enka really lost popularity, not just with J-pop, but post-World War II. There was the rock and roll revolution, jazz music, livelier band music took over the world. Some Korean pop music, though, does draw from Japanese Enka. Another shared interest, manga and anime. 
Actually, some manga characters who really just kind of took over the world were inspired by characters like Disney ones and Betty Boop, ones with big eyes and other now trademarks. Manga and anime really did take over the world. Actually, Sailor Moon has a very, very big following in Russia. So interesting, sometimes unexpected places where they really take off. There's a big post-Soviet spread of manga that led to the otaku subculture. We can talk about that in another episode, but the bottom line is otaku refers to this type of Japanese man into manga, anime, computers, so basically nerd culture. Korean comics are available in Japan, but they often are localized. They have parts removed, images removed or altered, and certain parts are just changed to be adjusted for Japan-specific preferences. Like how K-pop stars release Japanese versions of videos that are very different from the K-pop version sometimes. They're altered to not look out of place on a Japanese network. A survey across several European countries, a link to on my site, noted that 15% of those students were reading manga before age 10, 45% between ages 10 and 14, and 29% started while in secondary school. So the bottom line, people first check out manga at a young impressionable age. So as their identity is forming, as they're exploring different interests, figuring out what media excites them, manga was involved in those pivotal years of life. So that's one of many ways manga and anime took over the world, basically. There's also a long history of French interest in Japanese culture, really ever since the late 17th century, when French collectors were acquiring Japanese goods, especially like the woodblock prints. That was kind of like the equivalent, I guess, of what we would call caveman art, manga before manga, these illustrations. The French also see similarities between manga and bon dessinée, which is French comics, French and Belgian comics. Anime was also on French TV in the mid-70s and 80s, although mostly just the stereotypical ones, the most gory or violent, or the other extreme, the cutest, most kawaii. So Japanese pop culture, in one way, has led to interest in others. Kind of like how K-dramas have been a gateway into K-pop for some. Anime and manga sometimes pique interest in the music that also comes from Japan. With the similar training system and often similar interests and sources of inspiration, how do K-pop and J-pop differ? And why is K-pop so much more popular? First of all, I've talked about this stuff a bit on the show before, but I want to share more now in this greater context. One is the sound is very different. There's a very specific set of scales used when making a J-pop song, like the Miyako Boshi scale, the Minyo scale. They actually use different scales in their music to give J-pop that signature poppy sound, the pep in it. It's naturally more fast-paced and happy-sounding, more kawaii-esque, warrants itself to more kawaii cute music videos. And also K-pop has more Western influences, more rap and hip-hop, and also more Western influences just because the people making the music are from the Western world, like Harvey Mason Jr., he worked with Justin Timberlake, and he's worked with a ton of SM artists, Shiny, TVXQ, BOA, XO. So the actual songwriters and producers are often from the West, not so much for J-pop. Second big difference are the visuals. Because, like I said, K-pop stars will alter their music videos or release a brand new version for Japan and Japan's specific preferences. Japan is viewed as so, ironically, despite the massive pop culture spread worldwide, very isolated and unique. Certain things are just the way they are in Japan, unlike anywhere else in the world. 
attracting that specific audience is a very distinct goal to have. What may really strike a chord everywhere else may not there or vice versa. But J-pop has kind of stepped up its game over time when it comes to the live performance aspect. Yumi Matsutoya is a big example. She really helped popularize different costume changes and other beyond-the-voice parts of a show that weren't even really originally taken into much consideration, viewed as that big of a deal, to bring a whole world to life. Now there are artists like Nissi, who I really like, J-pop artists who have whole cinematic mini-movies of music videos. The cinema of it all definitely compares to the level in K-pop, as well as the big use of colors and the immersiveness of watching. It also differs because of dating way back Confucian beliefs, and there are still some Confucian elements in Korean values like spending a lot of time with people of the same sex. So in South Korea, it is more common for women to hang out together and men to hang out among other men. Not as much mixing, which is why J-pop and J-rock have a lot more co-ed groups, and co-ed groups in K-pop often fizzle out. Another big difference, the fandom culture. Yes, they'll hold up light sticks and stuff. Yes, they'll cheer on their stars at award shows or on their own variety shows. Actually, for some groups, they even have their own custom theater. So fans just regularly go down to the theater and watch that group. It's kind of a unique, intimate way to feel like you're on their journey. I talk about that quite a bit in the episode called the AKB48 Vision. In other ways, though, the fan culture is different because in Japan, they really don't want, they don't think of all press as good press at all. They want to control the message, do not think all press is good press. So if you unauthorized publish a t-shirt, for example, with a fun fandom inside joke on it, in K-pop, that's like, lol, let's do it. In J-pop, that's like, how dare you? Don't do something unofficial. Cup sleeve events? Nuh-uh. Any use of their image? No way. Homemade banners for a show? Nope. None of that stuff. I mean, even Lady Gaga is not immune. Like, she was on SMAP show, posted an unauthorized clip from her appearance on YouTube, and had our YouTube account suspended for a bit. You just can't do unauthorized promo. So efforts that really help strengthen that sense of, I want to support this artist, that sense of community and commitment is not encouraged in Japanese culture. So the fandom is not as passionate maybe in some ways, although they can still relate to it as much as other people have music resonate with them. But expressing that is not happening in a way that keeps the spread perpetuating. So some artists make it big there, but never beyond there, because fans can become unofficial PR agents and help spread the word, but not as much there. There's also been quite a long-term media ban, although the Johnny's media ban was lifted in 2018, but previously they had press sign NDAs and stuff. It was a whole thing. Not all J-pop agencies have been so strict and private, though, but some have to an extent that it's hard to imagine a K-pop company rejecting that many offers for interviews. Part of it is size, too. South Korea is so relatively small that for that country to make a profit in any industry, having a global focus is a good idea. But it doesn't matter as much in China or Japan. That's why C-pop is also not as big as K-pop, because they don't really care about getting global fans. The managers don't really care. They can make a ton of money just being famous at home. There's big enough of a population. So what's the future of J-pop look like? There may be more J-pop stars who are considered to follow K-pop standards for training. 
It's interesting now, though, to see it framed like J-pop stars are being now trained under the K-pop system. No, actually, K-pop took it from J-pop first. But it'll be interesting to watch the other crossover. J-pop stars becoming K-pop stars is becoming more common. A big recent example, Miyawaki Sakura, who signed with HYBE after she was in HKT48, she was also in Eyes 1, so she's done Korean and Japanese promo. There are also stars I like, like Kawaguchi Arena. She's released songs in both languages, Japanese and Korean. I wouldn't be surprised if J-pop made more of a splash on charts in the U.S. or other Western countries in the future, but I just see it as so far behind K-pop, it will not be as common ever. It just won't. I mean, when I celebrate a favorite K-pop artist's music video milestone, for example, or a streaming milestone, it's like hundreds of thousands or millions of views, hundreds of millions. And when I celebrate a J-pop fave's streaming milestone, it's like 10,000, which is big. It's notable, but I mean, K-pop runs laps around them in some ways. One way J-pop is ahead of K-pop, though, is with the trend of virtual stars. This I talked about ad nauseum in the episode called Miku, Holograms, and a Redefining of Reality. I also, if you're interested, might relink my research study, my senior project, on my website, which was about virtual stars and the longer-than-you-think trend of having a CGI singer. And Japan has been a leader with that because partly they just don't conceptualize reality in the same way. And the example I gave in that episode is like, if you go to a show in the U.S. with puppets and you suddenly see the hand beneath the puppet, it's annoying. It ruins the illusion. It ruins the sense of this is real right now. Japan is a different conceptualization of what's a performance and what in the performance does not take away from that veneer, from that veil. So for them, if the whole person is on stage with the puppet, which they have a long history of being, that's not weird at all. That doesn't break the illusion. That's just a normal part of the show. So similarly, they have Vocaloids, hologram characters, digital stars with no physical human presence in the world become hits because, to them, becoming 2D or 3D does not break the sense of reality in the moment. It might also be interesting if a site like Nico Nico catches on. In Japan, that's really big for YouTube. It's kind of like Instagram Live. Before Instagram Live was a thing, a lot of pieces of pop culture, the predecessors do come from Japan. Anyway, Nico Nico is like rapid running feed of comments across the whole screen as you stream. People love it because the image quality is next level. Plus, lacks copyright enforcement. It's actually, though, been cracked down when people try fanfiction type stuff with it. But Nico Nico is quite linked to plugged in tech vocaloid fandom culture. So watching that kind of site in the future will also be interesting. Obviously, there is so much more I could say about this relationship between K-pop and J-pop, what's similar and different, but I'll cap it off there for now. I will have recommendations for you as to the best J-pop for beginners and everyone, period, on an upcoming episode, so look out for that. Until then, thank you all for tuning in, and I'll talk to you all again very soon. Bye, everybody.